You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, wow, what an incredible story. One of our fewer, few Korean War veterans, somebody who served in the Navy uh, throughout the Korean War, also flew missions and uh, worked with the Blue Angels, became a member of the, the famous Navy Blue Angels. We'll get to his story. Just an incredible tale coming up here in just a moment. Uh, but first, again, our normal reminders, please continue to leave us Apple reviews and reviews wherever you get your podcast. Give us five stars and thumbs up. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. And I appreciate seeing all the reviews that you guys leave and how much you love this program. So thank you all for that very, very much. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Uh, tell a friend to do the same. We appreciate the love there as well. Our promotion with Amazon continues on. Go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. Uh, it will redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations that have come up here on the show. So it's a great and easy way to help out veterans charities and, and VSOs and veteran service organizations just by doing Amazon shopping, but you got to go to hazardground.com first. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Give a thumbs up, smash that like button, uh, and tell us why you love the content there as well. All right, this week's guest is 96 years young. Uh, joined the Navy at age 17 during World War II. Uh, served during the Korean War uh, with an incredible story to tell uh, and was on patrol flying missions for, for two years including one landing during a Category 4 hurricane. Uh, and a number of the missions that uh, he conducted, some of them are still considered top secret. Also was a member of the U.S. Blue Angels, that Na- Navy demonstration squad, uh, and then finally got off active duty in 1951, went on to work for Lockheed Martin, and now continues to share his story in several different ways. He is Dick Shroud joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dick, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, an incredible story. Uh, and and just for the audience here's background, your son, Mark, is with you just in case we need his help along the way. Um, so if you see him and you're watching on a YouTube channel, you see him pop in or you hear a third voice. It's Mark just kind of help guiding us through this whole thing. Uh, and I was telling your son before we started, I think you're only the second Korean War veteran we've had. It's been a very difficult thing to find service members from the Korean War. One, who are still alive, but two you know, can, can remember it and share all the stories. So I certainly appreciate you, uh, you spending some time with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why did you want to join the Navy at 17 years old, right smack in the middle of World War II? Well, uh, I was in high school when the war started and they passed the law that, uh, on your 18th birthday, if you were physically able, you got drafted in the Army. But if you didn't want to get, go in the Army, if you wanted the Navy, Marines, or Air Force, you had to volunteer while you were 17. So as soon as I got out of high school, I was 17, and so I volunteered for the Navy. Did you know that you wanted to be a pilot? Uh, yes, uh, 
uh, reason I, uh, you know, I was back before almost four airplanes, and the first first time I ever saw an airplane, I was uh, 15 years old, and uh, we had a farm, and this uh, Popper Cub J3 came and landed on it, and he uh, taxied up to me, and he said, you want to get in and go for a ride? And I said, I sure do, but you know, it was the first airplane I'd ever seen. And so anyway, we, he took me up and flew around and explained to me all the controls and what they did. And, and then he told me, you know, uh, how, how, how he's going to land it. And so we came in and landed on this uh, about 50 acre meadow. So you know, it wasn't like you know, having to run, land on the runway. So uh, he landed it, and, and uh, he started getting out. And he said, "Okay, it's yours." <laughs> so, so okay. I, 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 took, I, I was able to take off and fly around, and, and you know, try to you know, uh, practice a little, you know, stalls and everything, and. Uh, I came back in and landed okay, so I said, boy, this is for me. So, <laughs> so like, you had gotten into the plane with, like, no formal training and, and just tried to fly it and land it? Right. right. Wow. So, so that's the reason that when I joined the Navy, I told them I was interested in uh, being an uh, aviator and uh, and so they, they gave me a whole bunch of tests, and the uh, I passed all of them real good. And they said, well, said, you did real good, but uh, there was one problem. Uh, we don't have any quarter for pilots now. But they said, we do need some uh, uh, machine gunners for SP2C hell divers. And uh, asked me if I'd like to, to try that. And I said, anything to be flying in the Navy. So so they sent me to, to a combat aircrew and a school and, and, uh, and they, they, uh, went through radar training and I'm uh, I was number one in the class. They, I got promoted, and I went through radar school and was number one in the class. Got promoted again. Uh, went through gunnery school, and uh, I'd I'd had an uncle who was a sharpshooter in World War One, and he had, had trained me how to uh, shoot. So uh, I was able to flip a dime up in the air and shoot a hole through it with either a pistol or a rifle. And so this kind of impressed the uh, Navy trainers that trained me to be a gunner. And and, uh, and one of the final uh, tests was to go on a skeet range, shoot at 30, uh, 300 uh, uh, clay pigeons, one at a time, I was the first one in the history of the Navy to hit all 300 of them. So uh, they sent me on to uh, 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 
Banana River, Florida, so I could uh, uh, train in the back seat of a SP2C hell diver, and I I got in the required training, and uh, I was able to would would shoot it, uh, you know, uh, 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 stowed. Uh, uh, targets in the air, and I could always, I, I could really reel, reel them full of holes. So anyway, I got my combat acronym wings, and uh, so they headed me toward the Southwest Pacific, and uh, I was just getting on a, 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 a carrier when the, the uh, World War II entered, and uh, and so I, I laughingly I take credit for ending the Southwest Pacific War because Emperor Hirohito knew that that Texas uh, sharpshooter was headed his way. That he said, "I surrender." <laughs> so, for clarification's sake, I just want to be clear that you. Wanted to be a pilot in the Navy, but they had told you they need gunners instead. So you were going to be a gunner on a, instead of being a pilot. Correct. Okay. But, and so the, it was the SBC two, is that what it was called? SB2C. SB2C. Okay. And what kind of aircraft was that? That was a single engine, uh, uh, airplane that was used on carriers. Got it. Okay. Dive bomb, right? Yes, sir. You're diving and dropping bombs on the enemy. Got it. Okay. So you went through all this training. Obviously, you're very good and very accurate, which is incredibly important. Um, you get on the carrier by the end of World War II. What happens next? Uh, well, that, that's uh, that's when the war ended. Uh, we were just leaving uh, San Diego when the war ended. And uh, that's uh, laughingly, uh, I said, I, I, I take credit for uh, right. ending World War II in the Pacific uh, because Emperor Hirohito uh, heard that that sharpshooter Texan was on the way and he said, I give up. <laughs> Right. So after World War II is over, what's your next assignment? Well, uh, I, I was scheduled to be you know, released back to you know inactive duty, but uh, I, I checked with uh, the right place to see if they had any quarter for pilots, and sure enough, they did. So. They looked at my scores. They said, well, all the scores are pretty uh, good, so you can start flight training. But and they set, they had set up a program called the V-5 program. And that, that program, they sent me to college for two years, and I went to the University of Texas. Then at the end of that, I went... I was sent to Pensacola and uh, went through flight training and won my wings and, and 
and so yeah, yeah. well uh, yeah, what half hour do you have to go from there? Oh, okay, uh, no, that, <laughs> that's uh, my point, I suppose. Um, no, but I appreciate you 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 following along here. So, when when the Korean War kicks off, where are you? I mean, do, do are you still in training? I mean, what, what, what status are you in? Okay, well, uh, I, when I when I was in when I went through. Uh, flight training that there was the uh, Jesse Lee Brown, the first black naval aviator, was going through flight training. So I knew him, and he got his wings one to one class before I did, and uh, both of us got transferred to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, and uh, uh, Jesse and Tom Hudner. His wingman, they were assigned to the uh, USS Leyte, the carrier, and I was assigned to, to the USS Cabot uh, aircraft carrier. Uh, and we went through training for a year or two, and uh, then the Korea started in 1950. Uh, and so both carriers were scheduled to go to uh, the Southwest Pacific. But at the last moment, the FBI contacted the Navy Department and said, hey, we, uh, we have a big problem on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. And there's a 12-mile international zone up and down the coast that no other country can come inside of that permission. But Russian submarines were coming in that uh, zone and coming up to the land, letting spies off, coming back later and picking them up. So they selected my carrier, since we were anti-submarine, to, to stay on the East Coast. So. That's we we flew for two years uh, up and down the east coast from uh, Cuba to Iceland, and anytime we caught a Russian submarine inside that twelve zone twelve mile zone, we'd sink it. I mean, so your job here is basically to find, seek, and destroy. Russian submarines uh, in an area in and around the east coast of Korea. Um, no, off off the coast of the United States. Oh, off the coast of the United States. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't even actually in Korea at any point in time ever, or no? No, I was in the Atlantic fleet the whole time of, of the two years of Korea. Uh, which is crazy because this type of mission, like, it, you know, and some of it is still classified, but, you know, th- it's insane to think that they were constantly trying to get spies into the country the entire time. Uh, I didn't understand the question. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I probably should have asked the question. That's on me again. Um, but it, it to me, it, it, I mean, did it ever seem crazy to you that? Russia was continually trying to get spies into America during that time. 
Yeah. Well, they uh, they were, <laughs> uh, uh, and that's that's what we 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 had a. Uh, Twenty-four pilots on the carrier, and we had eighteen airplanes, and uh, half uh, half of the airplanes were had a big radome under the uh, belly of them, and, and they would use those for searching for the submarines and. The other one was a killer plane, which uh, had uh, bomb bays and it could carry uh, uh, death charges and torpedoes and and mines and other things. And we had ten five-inch rockets under our under the wings and and ten eight uh, fifty-caliber machine guns under the wings. So. They were a perfect airplane to, you know, sink a submarine. So, what's it like watching that round go from the plane down into the ocean? And can you see an explosion? Uh, well, it's uh, uh, the submarine. Yeah, it's. Usually it'd still be underwater. I mean, it, it, all it'd be, I'd, you know, we could see is a periscope. So uh, we could uh, destroy them, you know, under the water. So that, uh, we, we could see a, you know, a lot of commotion. But, of course, I, I had the best... Uh, uh, License for flying uh, on the instrument, so I only flew at night. So and uh, and also uh, in the daytime, if the weather was too bad for the younger pilots to fly in, then I'd fly in their place. So uh, I I was either in complete darkness at night, or I was in bad weather in the daytime. So I could I hardly ever you know, could see the water. Right. You had over 500 landings. One of them was during a Category 4 hurricane. Uh, you mentioned bad weather. That's bad weather. How do you land a plane in a hurricane? <laughs> With the help of my guardian angel. It was impossible. I couldn't even see the carrier. It was raining so hard. You know, you know, we just had a Category 4, you know, headed for uh, California, but it, you know, it, uh, it diminished and wasn't, didn't hit land hard, but uh, the, uh, I, <clears throat> well, that, that night, but my, my the search plane I was with sent me off. He they had a, he found a target. He sent me uh, off to investigate it because you know there's other things that you know, that cause a blip on the radar rather than a submarine. You could be somebody in a boat or an airplane or 
uh, you know, are, are different things. So we'd have, we'd have to investigate everything that, you know, looks suspicious as a submarine. So uh, I was, I was, uh, and we said, we, uh, we would stay up for eight hours and, and then we had another team and be, uh, uh, fly for eight hours and then another team for eight hours to complete the day. So I was uh, nearly 2,000 miles away from the carrier and it was, you know, it was uh, during wartime so the carrier could not turn on any running lights because enemy submarines could you know, see them and sink them. So uh, I, I, my, my first problem was to, you know, you know find a carrier, but uh, we also had radio silence. This carrier couldn't call me and tell me that they were in the middle of a hurricane. And, and uh, I, so I couldn't call them either. So, so when I headed back to the carrier, I was almost through before I started, you know, hitting the bad weather, and uh, and then that's uh, when my guardian angel really had to take over because I was flying completely blind for the time, and you know, the wind blowing 140 mile an hour, and, and the waves for the ship record, the waves were 40 foot waves, so that. Oh, wow. I was pitching like a rubber ball, <laughs> and uh, and it was going underwater. The flight deck was disappearing at times, and so uh, I made six passes, and I got a wave off by the LSO because the, the deck wasn't level enough to get my wheels down and get my tail hook to catch a cable, so... On the seventh pass, uh, it was level and uh, gave me a cut. And uh, my tail hook caught, and there were nine cables. My uh, uh, tail hook caught the ninth cable. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, if you miss that cable, you just slide right off. You know, there were 17 other planes that were tied down with double steel tie downs on the front end of the carrier. So I I couldn't, you know, I, I had to land. Otherwise, I'd play on those planes and it'd be a, a terrible explosion. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I, when I stepped out of my plane, uh, the Admiral of the Test Force had a, he had a recliner up in the superstructure there watching flight operations. He, he was standing there getting soaking wet, and he stuck his hand out. He said, son, that's the most uh, unbelievable flying I ever saw. He said, he said, I'd already kissed you goodbye. And I told him, I said, well, that's, that was not uh, me flying, sir. That was my guardian angel, and he said, "I know." I said that was my. I told him that was my co-pilot, 
And uh, he said, well, you didn't have a co-pilot. You just had a single-engine plane. And I said, I certainly did, sir. My guardian angel was doing the flying to that. And uh, so then there was, if, if, you, if you go to YouTube and select good co-pilot, there's a song uh, written by Steve Williams uh, in Nashville that that belt might have landed on the carrier that night. Oh, that's awesome. Again, so you can go to YouTube, and the name of the song is Good Pilot? Good Co-Pilot. Good Co-Pilot, sorry. Okay. And you'll get it there. That's that's incredible. Um, do you? What was the hardest part about that mission for two years that you did, uh, trying to intercept Russian submarines? And I mean, you know, for doing it for two years straight, did it, did it ever get like – Boring is not the right word, but, I mean, did you ever want to just do something different? <laughs> well, it, it, that, that was most monotonous flying that you can imagine. You, know, you, know, you fly for eight hours, and especially in the dark, and, and it's nothing but even if there's a moon, uh, uh, you know, if it's moon or stars, you know, you could, could see see the surface, but if, if it didn't have those, I mean, you it's like flying in a black ink bottle. You couldn't tell which way it was up, down, or sideways. So, it, you, I was flying the instruments 100% of the time. I, I guess, uh, you know, that's a job that doesn't necessarily feels like it, it as it's ever complete. When did they tell you that you were done with this mission? As far as doing the flying up and down the East Coast to, to find the Russian subs. What did they tell you when it was over? Well, it was over when, when the, uh, after two years, uh, the, the war was ceased and, uh, the war itself was ceased, but there was something happening in the politics. It, it continued on on paperwork, but uh, anyway, after the fighting stopped, then uh, our our carrier was uh, you know called back to other duty. So, <clears throat> but uh, when during those two years the uh, there were, I was on six different car- carriers uh, that uh, the, uh, uh, I, I'll read them off, the USS Cabot, the USS Palau, the USS Mendora, the USS Cibonet, the USS Wright, and the USS Aristini. And they had enough fuel and food and everything to last for four months. So at the end of that uh, four months, there'd be another carrier uh, uh, pier and we'd take off the first one and land on the second one, fly off of it for four months. And then that's how we uh, spent the two years with the uh, Flying off of six different carriers. That's incredible. 
further point that I didn't tell that the next next morning after, well, I, of course I got out my plane and I got inside real quick, but the plane was rocking 45 degrees from side to side. And if, if it had gone 46 degrees, the carrier would have capsized and turned upside down and sank. So, boy, I was, that's first time I'd really gotten scared. And, and then the next morning at daylight, all 18 planes that were on the flight deck had been washed off. So, 18 planes washed off the flight deck. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what's that sight like when you walk out to go to your plane and they're all gone? <laughs> well, of course, they told us that, uh, I mean, as uh, soon as it got daylight, they, they woke all of a sudden and said all, all the planes have been washed overboard, so... <laughs> that's got to be a sight like looking out into the ocean and just seeing planes floating well I guess they didn't float that long but you know uh, well, they, they, didn't, they didn't float they sank <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they probably sank pretty quick but you know yeah, I mean yeah. uh, anyway so after this mission is over you next get to the Blue Angels is that right like time time wise but, yeah because I had made well, I had I'd made uh, 500 uh, night uh, carrier takeoffs and landings, and, uh, and about two in a day time. Uh, but uh, really, a total of seven, a little over seven during the two year period. So that uh, the uh, that. Uh, 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 since they, you know, I, I, uh, and and I made all of them without, without uh, having a wreck. You know, I I, had, I was uh, my, I, that was where my guardian angel came in at me too. So, yeah, but I, I didn't didn't have any barrier crashes. So so that. Uh, the Navy t- rewarded me by transferring me to the uh, Navy Blue Angels, and uh, uh, and I and their s- system then was that for the first year, all all you do is fly you, through the pattern the the pattern uh, forward time today. And uh, so it's, you, you start out, you're about uh, six or eight feet apart, and by the time the years are with you, are down to 18 inches apart. Uh, so, uh, but uh, five months later, after I started with them, the uh, Defense Department cut the budget of the Navy so that they had to uh, cancel the, the Blue Angels. So uh, as soon as that happened, I was released in active duty, and I, I was in the reserves for 10 years before 
I was finally uh, retired from the Navy. What What's it like, I guess, after you do such a high-level mission, like what you were doing searching for the Russian submarines, and then you go to a demonstration squad? I don't want, I'm not trying to you know, belittle how tough the job of a, of a Navy pilot for the Blue Angels is, but <laughs> did it seem like, you know, hey, I went from up here to down here? Did it feel like sort of... That sort of feel, that sort of feeling because you weren't in a combat role anymore. Yeah, as it, it's, uh, I mean, the Blue Angels, I get from a you know non-flyer, you know, it, it, it looks dangerous, but uh, I, uh, when pilots get to that uh, level, they're they're so perfect. Uh, there's no really. I say it's just, it's completely boring, really. What it is, is because I mean it's not a, a not uh, you're you're doing what you've been trained to do for years. So you know it's just like riding a bicycle. You you can do it and not even think about it. I guess the. Uh, um the the reward for the Blue Angel time was was uh, enough to you just get to be behind in the cockpit, you know, and flying a plane, right? I mean, that's that's still the best part of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. When they when they disbanded it, were you disappointed? Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> grossly. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess did you think that you were going? to I mean, Go ahead, that was, being the getting to fly the Blue Angels shows is a that's a highest highest goal that all Navy aviators have. But okay. and I thought I was going to get to you know flying some shows, but uh, uh, but I, <coughs> I well. I, yeah, well, I, I went to work for Lockheed and as a air nautical designer, and and uh, <clears throat> I ended up I, w- I was a supervisor for the sixty-two years that I have designed twenty Lockheed airplanes, uh, and C one thirty is. We we started on it in 1951, and it's it, they're still building them. We built you know, over 2,700 of them, and we just got a con- Lockheed just got a contract for three billion dollars to build 50 more of them. So, how, how do you know how to build a, a, an airplane? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I can drive a car. That doesn't mean I know how to build one. So you flew a plane. How do you know how to build one? Well, you, uh, there's a lot of schooling. Uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, went to University of Texas, and uh, uh, and then uh, uh, when I came to Marietta and got a job at Lockheed, I went to Georgia Tech for two years at night, 
to learn everything I need to know about how to design an airplane. <clears throat> so you cheated. You went to school. Okay. All right. I get it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> By the way, when, when they... I just want to back up for a second. When they told you that the Blue Angels were being done, did, did it force you out of the Navy at that point in time, or you chose to leave? Well, uh, yeah, I, I was released in active duty immediately. Uh, in August the 20th of 1951, I was released, and, and so I, I, uh, I got, got in the reserves, you know, so I could, you know, keep flying, and I stayed in them for 10 years, but but back to the C-130, uh, uh, designing those uh, 20, over 2,700 airplanes, we we designed uh, th- uh, t- 243 different versions of the C-130. They're, you know, the outside... Uh, uh, structure, you know, stayed the same, but, you know, every customer, we sold it to customers all over the world and uh, and they still sell them, uh, but uh, uh, each one of them, you know, wants something different, you know, different radio or different color or, you know, all kind of different things, so we, we would have to send a set a new uh, number to it so we could tr- track it in, you know, in a computer. So, uh, how, many, how many planes would you say you took part in building over the course of your, what is it, 50 years at Lockheed? 62 years and four months. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, can you guesstimate how many planes you were responsible for building? Uh, well, I, I was involved in everyone that they built uh, at Marietta since uh, 1952. Wow. So, the crazy part is, is uh, my headquarters is right next to that Lockheed Martin base right there. The Georgia yeah. National Guard headquarters are right there. They're right next door. Yeah, uh, uh, Dobbins Air Force Base. That's the one, sir. Yep, that is the one right there. Yeah, uh, that's where we you know, flew off. Uh, that's where flew our planes was, off. Was there any part of you as you were going through your time at Lockheed and other um, missions or things, to, you know, combat conflicts over the years that you saw was there like a part of you that ever felt like, hey, may, I could still do this. Maybe I should get back in, whether it was the 60s in Vietnam or the late 50s, whatever it may be. Did did you want to ever get back behind in the cockpit and, and start flying again? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I always felt, you know, I was, I was super trained and qualified then. Uh, so I, I, I think I could still do it. In fact, in fact, last about a year ago, the Blue Angels put on a show down at uh, uh, Peachtree City down south of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
about a month before that, they had invited me down to Pensacola, where their headquarters is, and and uh, spent the day with them, got to know all the new uh, pilots and and all the mechanics and everybody, and so. Uh, when they put on that uh, a show at uh, Peace Free City, they asked me if I wanted to fly in their C-130 uh, as co-pilot during the, during the show. Oh, wow. So I've been trying all that 62 years, trying to get a ride in uh, something I had designed and never been able to get off the ground in one. And I, 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 that was a fulfillment of my greatest dream when, when I got to take off in Pat Albert uh, uh, that day down at Peachtree City. That is awesome. That's a that's a great sort of circle of life, right? You know, I mean, you, after being a pilot and creating this plane, you finally got to go sit in the cockpit of one. That's and actually fly it for that matter. That's that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Um, so you are currently the father of four children, four stepchildren, 41 grandchildren, 42 great-grandchildren, and three great-great-grandkids. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of youngins. How much do they know about your service? How much? Well, How much do they know about your time in the Navy and what you did? Uh, well, probably very little. Uh, I mean, the younger ones. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, but, you know, uh, as many ste- uh, grandchildren, step and uh, uh, great. Their grandchildren, when they get old enough to start having children, <laughs> our population of my family is just going to explode. <laughs> Did any of your uh, kids, grandkids, great grandkids decide to go into the Navy or be or be a pilot? Well, not yet, uh, but uh, I, I always had you know, that hope in the back of my head. <laughs> right. What was the most, um, for for you, what was the best part about your time at Lockheed? Was it the C-130 or was there something else? There's something else you, I mean, to stay in one company for 60 years is almost insanity, especially nowadays. Like nobody would ever be in one spot for 62 years. People can't stay in one spot for 62 days. (laughs) What What was the best part about working for Lockheed? Well, the best was uh, in that started in 1965 when we got a contract to build the C-5A, uh, which is a, the biggest uh, transport plane that, uh, that the United States has. And uh, it, uh, uh, like I say, I, I was supervisor of the... Uh, I call it the check group. My my group, well, the, the, there was uh, there were twelve groups in a in a, in a engineering division, and in your, in, 
uh, each group would only be you know responsible for you know certain items of the plane. You know, one like landing gear, one like hydraulics, one you know avionics, and you know one electrical, and you know so on. So there. But my group, uh, we we checked every drawing that all these uh, twelve uh, groups. Uh, Design and made sure that uh, everything was correct and it would uh, you know satisfy the requirement it was supposed to and so forth. So that uh, uh, I, I I had a hundred and twenty six engineers reporting to me in Marietta and a hundred in London, England. And I had 176 scattered all over the United States and Canada that uh, reported to me they were checkers at these different uh, subcontract places. Uh, and plus that, they gave me, uh, I was supervisor of 40 secretaries. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, and, and, we had, and we had a total of 4,000 engineers, just engineers working on the C5 program. But it was a real successful airplane, and I was standing out there on the runway when it took off for the first time, and it was so big, it is an optical illusion. It looked like it was wasn't even moving at all. Hardly. I thought it was going to stall and crash. I'm hollering at him to get more power. But it was going, you know, plenty fast to fly. And it was, you know, basically a successful flight. But, uh, that's, um, I'm real proud of my uh, C5. You know, it, it's a double decker that yeah. on the Projecting part six Greyhound buses, and and on the top deck you can put two hundred and fifty troops. So that's uh, I'm it's, real proud of our C five. I've been inside a C five and a C seventeen, so uh, I've gotten a chance to see the uh, the, the the raw. Uh, I guess power is the right word. Just the ability of what, what they could do is amazing. I'm curious what. Uh, what do you think has a bigger reach? Your actual family with all your great-grandkids and everything else or your, your Lockheed Martin family who you've worked with for 62 years? I mean, there's a whole web <laughs> of people that you've touched over the course of, of 80 well, years or so. Yeah, well, Lockheed went out before, but, you know, during that period of designing and building the C-5, we got up to 35,000 people in Marietta. Wow. So, I, I, I've known a lot of people, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm getting ready to celebrate my 97th birthday, so I've outlived most of them, and it's... Sad that I don't have many old friends left to talk to. Well, uh, listen, I am so thankful that you sat down to talk with us again. Uh, you know, four children, four stepchildren, 41 grandchildren, 42 great grandchildren, three great great grandkids. 
uh, a, a total of, of 10 plus years of service, um, you know, in, is a naval, naval aviator, uh, including some of the most high level missions that you, we, we ran in our United States government. And then, of course, everything that you did at Lockheed Martin to, you know, further our American military like that's, you know, that's 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 just incredible. Um, you've spent your entire life associated with the military and and making sure it's the best military out there. And that's that's just incredible to me. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I was. I retired when I was 88, and uh, and also during that time, uh, Lockheed loaned me to a Gulfstream aircraft uh, factory, you know, down in Savannah, and I did, helped design two uh, Lock, uh, uh, Gulfstream airplanes that are flying today. So. Wow! I mean, just it's a incredible. The story never ends. Well. Look, I, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, it's great to talk to you. 90, almost 97 years young. Uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done, not only for uh, our, our country and your service, but our country and, and building some of the finest you know, pieces of machinery that we have today uh, that keep our military strong. And uh, I, it's, it's an honor to get to talk to you. I'm wishing you nothing but the best of health and continued success going forward. <laughs> I'm still, uh, I'm a hundred percent. My health is perfect. Uh, doctors are, they can't believe I'm everything. All my numbers are perfect. They, they've never seen that before in their life. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll celebrate 100 together then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> one of my doctors has said, if he lives long enough, that he's going to bake me a cake on my hundredth birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd love to be there for it. That's amazing. Listen, thank you to your family, to to your kids who helped facilitate this interview for us. I certainly appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Uh, and thank you so much for your time, sir. And thank you for being a great American. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I'm still there to tell you tell about it. <laughs> Richard Shaw, thank you for being I part love of that. My, I love my country. I love that flag. And so glad to be, still be here. Glad, glad that you're with us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 